Hello, and welcome to our Punch Drunk Loves, a podcast celebrating the films we adore. I am your host, Neil Bolt. Uh, on our Punch Drunk Loves, I am joined by a guest who brings a film that they love so much it leaves them punch drunk. Our combined task is then to discuss why they, that love exists and celebrate it, really. Uh, my guest this week is PlayStation Universe Senior Editor and member of the PlayStation Unchained podcast, Gary Bagdasarov. Gary, welcome. How are you? I am pretty damn good. Thank you for uh, pronouncing my name correctly, too. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on podcasts with you in the past. I, I should know by yeah. now. Yeah. I remember we did, used to have that running joke about mispronouncing it. But uh, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I remember it's the right It's nice way. to hear sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, when when you do podcasting long enough, it does get to the point where you get names come up and you're like, I've got to say this right, I've got to say this right, I don't want to get it wrong, like that. And, um, the episode I recorded before this one was uh, with Jay Krieger, and we were talking about uh, The Night Comes For Us, and you know, Timo's, see, I can't even say it now, his name comes up, and I was like, I've got to remember to say it right, I've got to remember to say it right, I think I've said it right twice out of five attempts you know in the first <laughs> half now <laughs> it's like which is even though it's really simple when you sort of break it down it, names are one of those things that that you, you know you spend so long reading a lot of stuff that you often just forget how is actually pronounced you know like yeah. that um you know the even night having, comes for us too man that phenomenal yeah. movie i love that yeah. movie yeah and you know that was a good uh <laughs> sort of set for the way this podcast works i think because yeah, it was a, a good back and forth chat about the different things it does. You know, a good sort of indicator that, you know, it doesn't happen to be all about classic movies in the traditional sense of like, you know, your big tentpole franchises, you know, the revered critical darlings, you know, it's stuff yeah. that you just genuinely have such great affection for that sort of goes beyond that rating system. Oh, absolutely. And, there, there's yeah. so many movies that I love that critics despise. Yeah. As 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 you probably know with DC movies <laughs> for me. <laughs> that's it. it. It's just a personal thing, you know? Yeah, that's it. And, you know, that's why I wanted to do this, you know, as a podcast. Was, you know, it's nice to hear the passion people have for the movies they love. And, you know, then I sort of come into it with that, you know, and, and sort of get to understand the movie in a different way, maybe. Maybe even get to earn a new appreciation, I think, you know, the movie we're going to be talking about today is very much an example of that. But you know, mm -hmm. before we sort of get there, um, I've got to do the arbitrary thing of asking you a few general questions as a first-time guest, uh, just to sort of get to know your cinematic palette, if you will. Um, so we, we always start off with the first film memory that you have. First film memory? Uh, Friday the 13th. Wow. Um, <laughs> quite honestly, yeah. Um, I it was kind of my introduction to horror, which is my favorite genre. Mm. Um, but yeah, they always had like reruns running on TV when yeah. you know I we 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 came to America as immigrants, so we didn't have you know a lot of stuff, but we had like basic TV. Yeah. And for some reason, Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, up to its sequels. I don't remember how many there were. I think there was, they were up to six at the time. Yeah. Um, they just played them randomly throughout the day. I don't even know what channel it was or anything, but <laughs> Friday the 13th was literally, I believe, my first memory of watching a movie. Um, <laughs> I don't even remember which part. I think it was part two. 
yeah was the one and then i found out oh there's a part one and then you know i got all pissed off because jason wasn't in i was like what is this shit (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah the, the the that franchise was kind of the starting point for a lot of things for me so yeah, yeah, and it, I mean, that, what way better to start in horror than having an icon like that? It's, uh, and, you know, this year is a great year for that because uh, October has a Friday the 13th this year as well. So maybe, yeah, maybe we, we'll, we'll get news of something new if we're lucky in that franchise. Uh, it's so sad that that yeah. franchise is in such a terrible state right now. Greedy, selfish people fighting over what? <laughs> I don't even yeah. understand. I know, with everything else going on in the background, it's a bit of an unfortunate situation. But they're getting close to resolving stuff, and, you know, we're getting that series. So hopefully, hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. It'll be back at some point. Um, right, so on to question two or four. Is your, what is your favorite genre? Oh, well, like I said, horror. Um, yeah. <laughs> horror has been... Yeah, we're two for two, <laughs> I think, so far on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. for the longest time, it, it always... Like, people just seem to get grossed out and annoyed by a lot of horror stuff. I mm-hmm. think I've become so desensitized to it that it doesn't affect me anymore. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah like, the, the, the only movies, like, honestly, that affected me horror-wise, like, to me, like... The, the the violence, the gore, uh, the supernatural stuff doesn't affect me more as much, I guess, I guess as real life stuff. Yeah. Like to me, the real horror is, um, uh, what's that movie? Oh, the drug movie after Train Spotting, that they did, uh, Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, yeah. That movie to it. me is 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 horror. <laughs> like I can't watch that movie anymore. Like I watched it once. Uh, actually, I watched it like three times, and I can't do it anymore. That that's a terrifying movie for me. Because it's yeah. more, yeah. I don't want to say it's more real because obviously, death, murder, all that is real. But that to me is more terrifying than what I see in horror movies these days. Because I guess I can distinguish between reality and fiction, or fiction and nonfiction between those two. You yeah. know, like the Evil Dead stuff, obviously not really real as far as I know. <laughs> you know, I know people <laughs> believe de- demons and all that, but you know, until you see it yourself, it, it's very easy for me to distinguish between the two. That's um, it. Yeah, yeah. You, you, if you can relate to something on a very personal level, it becomes a lot more. You know, and you're right. There are films that are not in the slightest bit horror that just hit so hard. Yeah, you know, I think mm-hmm. one of the, one of the most recent examples was um, the Anthony Hopkins Oscar winner, uh, The Father. Yeah, where yeah, it's about his journey through alzheimer's and how and dementia like you know how it affects his brain and you know you get to see that you know that how jumbled mm-hmm. up everything is and how it doesn't make sense to him and it, it's just terrifying you know when, when you've ever experienced that with someone it's one of those things where you just look at it and go oh my god that's terrible um similarly yeah. um the riz ahmed film uh, the sound of metal you know, for me being like half deaf for my entire life yeah, you know, for someone to suddenly go deaf like that and just go through that process and the way they captured it, really just mm-hmm. ooh, it, it sent chills up my spine. Yeah, you know, and the, as you say, in both cases, films that aren't really horror in any way, shape, or form, but they just get it. You know, they they yeah. they, they get that thing. I suppose what I always go to as like my go-to one is where the wind blows, which you know is um 
by Raymond Briggs who created you know that charming the snowman cartoon um and it's an animated film just about two a doddering old couple in what will become like you know a nuclear apocalypse and it's just the naivety about who they are and what they don't understand about what's going on and how badly they fuck it up because of that and it's just horrifying you know like that i mean the point there is you know it is kind of supposed to be horrifying but mm. it's done in that you know if you've ever like seen like your grandparents or something like that and the way they can be and you just imagine them in that situation and you're like oh god christ you know like that it's horrid just horrid to get that and that is just the rawest form of horror yeah yeah the yeah, horror we sure. like is uh very much just entertainment at this point <laughs> it, it is unfortunately like i i always strive to find something that will i don't know maybe give me some kind of you know mm. like chill down my spine or something and there are some movies where there are scenes that that have it oh yeah um but to really mess me up i guess i can say for like a lot of movies do for a lot of people like my friend uh he and i uh and a couple of our other friends we all watched hereditary together yeah. and he refuses to watch horror anymore because of the little girl and the clicking noises that she made that's what terrified <laughs> him the most like it wasn't everything in the movie but that noise just he couldn't stand it anymore he he left during the movie <laughs> wow. like, I'm not watching this anymore. <laughs> that's brilliant yeah, and you know that that was another great movie. That's you know, it's hard. It's hard. Like that's one of the closest movies that I've gotten to where it's a little unsettling. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just like, you know, I talk about horror with my friends all the time. It just it's it's gotten so hard to really scare people these days. Yeah. Because of you know their reliance on CG and the fact that people just kind of aren't afraid of things like this anymore. You know, back in the day, like you know your parents told you stories like the boogeyman will get you if you don't do this or that, That's you know, it. they had a bigger impact. Now people like they have access to so much information with the internet and their phones. Like it just doesn't have that same effect because people aren't afraid of that stuff. And the same mm. thing with, you know, demons, you know, why was the exorcist so scary? Because a lot of people believed in that stuff now, not so much anymore. So it doesn't really scare them. That fear of hell and demons, it doesn't scare them anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I think my son has watched some very um, stuff I definitely wouldn't have watched at his age by that point. But yeah, he's quite used to it at this point. And um, I was saying to Jay on the previous episode, you know, he walked in at the end of um, The Night Comes For Us and, you know, the scene with the, um, the Stanley Blade through the cheek thing that mm -hmm. uh, happens at the end. Yeah, that was the thing that sort of made him go, oh, no, like that, didn't want to see it. Like that, just, <laughs> just the way that, you know, <laughs> it's just the way he's just smiling there, grinning, and he's like basically daring him to, yeah, go on, do it, sort of thing. And that, so yeah, it, it, it's amazing how that was more impactful. You know, which I find with him, you know, his, um, you know, the, the bit that gets him is ghosts and things like that. It's stuff he can't mm -hmm. rationalise and explain like that. And yeah, that's cool. So like, He's watched, you know, like Fede Alvarez's Evil Dead and, you know, Evil Dead Rides, things like that. You know, really gory stuff. But, you know, mm -hmm. The Conjuring did more to him than those films, you know, for instance. So Yeah, and I, I get that because, like, I love those movies. I think those movies kind of revived the genre a little bit from where it was at the time, like the first Conjuring movie. Um, 
I think that really helped the the genre going forward with more suspense rather than a reliance on jump scares, which unfortunately jump scare jump scares is all that really works nowadays. Uh, yeah. To to really scare people, like it's really hard to make a horror movie. I feel um, with just tension and you know building up that tension, it, it's yeah. very difficult these days. <laughs> people have a very short attention span. That's it, and you know there's a subset of the audience that are insistent that that horror is just those things it's gore and scares and if it doesn't mm-hmm. do either well for you then it's not horror or it doesn't work as a horror when as we've just discussed you know horror is in many forms and can be in many ways um mm-hmm. and yeah th- that's where you sort of can end up kind of boxing yourself in as a horror fan i think is uh, not looking at the wider genre and the wider ways of what horror can be yeah, and uh, yeah, so it, it's it's a fun genre. There's no doubt about that. You know, I've pretty much made most of my living the last ten years or so through horror in some way, <laughs> shape, or form. Stumbled into it somehow. But... I, I love to see like directors' ideas of you know old concepts if they can yes. come up with something new that's also terrifying in some way, shape, or form. You know, hmm. uh, especially since so much of it has been damaged by you know like Twilight and stuff like that, like vampires, werewolves. Like they're not scary anymore because of movies like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So seeing horror directors come in and try to revitalize these mythical creatures, I guess you can say at this point, or any creatures, um, and put an innovative spin on it, um, is always great to see. Even though, though the movie itself may not be great, the ideas behind it, I feel like, could be great. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the key things I think in horror is you have. Um, these moments in history where things begin to look silly or get ridiculed because of something. I, I think of like um, the way zombies were terrifying as they were until Michael Jackson's thriller came out and then they became a joke like that. And then mm-hmm. you, you had to sort of rebuke it by having a harsher way of doing it, you know. And uh, but, yeah, it evolved as a thing, you know, zombies sort of made their re-emergence back in, you know, the mid-2000s. Um, so it, it happens for every sort of thing. I think we're just getting it a bit more with vampires again and, you know, werewolves, as you said, so. Yeah, like, the zombie thing is funny because, you know, people like, you know, Night of the Living Dead came out, oh, that's terrifying, you know. But then people are like, well, they're so so. why can't you just walk around them? And they're like, oh, let's let's change that. Let's do the Dawn of the Dead remake and give them the ability to run. And all of a sudden, they become the ultimate weapon. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, and that, you know you're never going to survive if a zombie's running, because your ass is going to get tired. It's not. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And, you know, that changed everything forever. Yeah. You know, that whole double whammy of, you know, 28 Days Later and Dawn of the Dead was just mm-hmm. everything. But, yeah, we'll get on to the next subject first, because otherwise... Yes. Well, <laughs> 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 Um, so favorite actors. Oof, favorite. Um, gosh, that's, that's why I say plural because I know one is never easy enough. <laughs> yeah, interestingly, it's usually not a lot of actors that play in horror movies. Mm. Um, you know, Gary Oldman. I love Gary Oldman. He's one of my favorites. He's actually in, I think, the most of my favorite movies. There you go. Um, yeah, I love Gary Oldman. Uh, Tom Hanks obviously is phenomenal for me i i love tom hanks i love brad pitt i actually really love 
Tom Cruise's movies. I I don't like him as a person, but I love Tom Cruise in movies. I think he's hey, a yeah, great yeah. Actor. I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah, it's <laughs> like I think I think we had a similar discussion on the last episode about Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, you know, and you know, mm-hmm. how they've sort of grown into who they are as actors over the years, and it's been really delightful to see whatever you think of them as people. You know, there, there is yeah. something about them that is um traditional. You know, and mm-hmm. um, it's like they can they can literally go into any role in any genre and kind of knock it out of the park yes if they wanted to (laughs) um robert downey jr nicole kidman i'm a massive fan of nicole kidman um yeah just yeah i i have a very long range of of actors um i idol wise uh the, the actors i idolized growing up though yeah um it's probably the same actress for a lot of people, Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Sylvester right. Stallone, Bruce Willis, <laughs> pretty much the action stars, you know? I love watching all their movies, you know, especially with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know? He went from, you know, The Terminator, where he hardly had any lines, to something like True Lies and yeah. Commando and stuff like that, you know? He, I just love that guy. Uh, and yeah, and I, almost, I love almost everything he's in. Oh. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's, uh, that that recent documentary uh, on Netflix was uh, a series was very good for that. I mean, it, it was mm-hmm. basically basically his book, but you know, seeing it the way it was and seeing him reacting was, and the extra bits, you know, where he sort of owns up to his past misdemeanors and things like that. It's like, it, yeah, yeah and it, it, people look at him and they're like, oh, you know, he's you know this kind of actor, but he's got a huge range, man. Yeah, you know, he's showing twins, hilarious. You know, yeah. he's gone in almost every genre. Yeah. And he's done a pretty damn good job of it, too. Yeah, he really has. And, you know, I've seen him turn up in films for five minutes in recent years and be good. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, cameos. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he's definitely uh, underappreciated. You know, I think he's shown over the years, got a sharper mind than people ever gave him credit for at the beginning. He's, um, yeah, he, he was a savvy businessman before he was ever you know, an actor, you know, for instance. You know, so, yeah. I, yeah, like when I I don't remember if it was in that uh, Netflix documentary where he talked about the Terminator and how he told James Cameron how the character should be, and James mm. Cameron got pissed off and just told him, "Why don't you just play the character?" Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's how he yeah. got the job because yeah, he didn't want to be the Terminator. He wanted the lines. He wanted to be Kyle Reese. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, and just to think how that could have gone, we could have had O.J. Simpson doing that instead. That's, oh, uh, yeah. how crazy! <laughs> Um, so yeah, on to the final question then. Uh, favorite directors? Um, Luke Besson okay. <laughs> is one of them. Uh, I'm noticing David... patterns. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, David Fincher. Um, yeah. He's he's top notch. James Cameron. I don't think has ever put out a bad movie. Um, I do enjoy Peter Jackson's work. Um, uh, Guillermo del Toro. I think is one of the most innovative directors in the world to this day um people should really look at him and be like we want him to make movies for us especially horror movies because yes. his creature design ideas are out of this world um, yeah it, it, he's just it, it's just mesmerizing that he isn't a bigger deal but then you sort of step back for it and then you go well you know he's won oscars and yeah you know, he's done blockbuster style films and he's done everything but it's like 
he still kind of feels like an outsider, which is quite. An he really does. He really does. I think he just doesn't like to play ball with studios. It's like, this is my ideas. I don't like it when they interfere with my ideas. Yeah, yeah. I think he's been burned enough times, or in in more than one industry, <laughs> to sort of. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, yeah. I I was really looking forward to his Justice League Dark movie. Yes. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. That's unfortunate. Um, yeah. All right. So with that out of the way, let's uh, get on to the film we're discussing. And, you know, one of those directors, of course, uh, and some of the, those actors uh, you mentioned uh, are in this one. Uh, Luke Besson's vibrant sci-fi adventure, The Fifth Element. Uh, this features a stacked cast that includes, as we've said, Bruce Willis, uh, Milo Jovovich, Gary Oldman, uh, Chris Tucker and Ian Holm. Um, the Fifth Element sees Corbin Dallas, a New York taxi driver in the year 2257, caught up in the path of Earth's protector, an ancient warrior that is said to unite the elements to destroy a great evil. And Dallas meets a colourful cast of characters as he helped this super warrior, Lilu, to fulfil her destiny. So, Gary, when you go back to 1997, when this film came out, two years before George Lucas is going to go, you know, do the... Um, prequel trilogy and we just had like those you know special editions i think of um the star wars films like that you know there's a very distinct idea of what sci-fi films should look like and be like and yeah at that point especially in the blockbuster range i think the previous year we'd had independence day you know that, that, that was a very distinct one in that um men in black wasn't out yet i think that came out the year after this but you know this from the outset is trying to be a very different beast, isn't it? Because, yeah, I said vibrant at the top there, and it's very, very true about this. This is a film that Lou Besson himself said, you know, he was sick of seeing these sci-fi films all being in dark places and dark, all that. He wanted everything to be in daylight and all lit up and bright and colourful. And yet it really shows, I mean, down to every single thing, from costume to set pieces and scenarios. It, it's a really dazzling movie. Yeah, it's very much sticking to your eyes from minute one. Uh, yeah, well, one hundred percent agree with everything you just said. You know, for for me, uh, it's Luc Besson's ideas of the movie and the mm. way he wrote it. He wrote the characters, you know, the costume design, everything he wrote, everything he did in this movie. This to me um, is literally what the Guardians of the Galaxy is. And yes. like, this is like a prerequisite to that. This is literally what it is. Um, and, you know, the, the, I, the, the casting choices he made were so perfect for every character, you know, uh, and, and like he did before with Leon the Professional, he, he kind of made stars with this. You know, Mila Jovovich's career exploded after this movie, yeah. as did Natalie Portman's, even though Natalie Portman's, that was her first movie, uh, The Professional. But career is exploded from this yeah. movie. You know, Bruce Willis was kind of the only really established actor at the time. Yeah. And even he just had a sort of like a revival recently after having like a little down period in the 90s. You know, Pulp mm -hmm. Fiction, I think, yeah, after Pulp Fiction the year before. So you know, to go on to this afterwards was quite daring, I think, you know, considering you know, the, the things that he'd had in the recent past that, you know, caused his star to drop a bit. Yeah, and and it, it reminds me a lot of the ideas uh, uh, a movie I don't know if you ever see Idiocracy kind yeah. of put into place where we're in the future, 
everything sh- we imagine should be better, but it's actually worse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like the 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 landfill is the same place as the airport. You're like, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know. Um, the rich live insane lifestyles. You know, they get to go on to some other paradise planet and enjoy yeah. themselves while everybody else just suffers. And he does it such a good way of showing it too. Like with the, when they show the outside of New York city where, you know, it's all bright, everything looks happy, but then you go down and that's where the filth is. And where no, you know, the people that nobody wants to deal with are there. Yeah. Um, so he does such a phenomenal job of kind of establishing a kind of status quo in a way in this movie. And like I said, with, with, with the acting um, and, and the writing in general is so well done. Um, but yeah, like you said, it, it's great to see a sci-fi movie at that time um, that kind of, I don't want to say made fun of itself, but made fun of, a lot of the tropes that people have the idea of what sci-fi should be. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It, it felt like a, a farce and a caper sort of film you know, a lot of the time, which is, uh, there are a lot of great French films that, that do that, you know, that it, especially in the nineties you know, and early two thousands, where they'd have a real sense of adventure, but tell it in a really twisted way uh, and still just feel quite, strangely innocent whilst being you know a bit horny and and weird with it so and yeah this is like the blockbuster example of all that you know at that point yeah and it's extravagant in so many ways you don't like to do it but you know it's one of those films you turn around and go couldn't make this now could you sort of thing not the same way oh not the same way like if they made this movie today they would probably make it like a super serious movie yeah, and that's not what it is. <laughs> like it, down to the monster designs and and the the makeup and and the prosthetic, like like the 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 Borgs is that what they're called? The Borgs, yeah. like they just look like they have like a mask that they found at a Halloween store. Just put them on there. <laughs> yeah, it, it's everything is just very distinct though. You know, I think that that's the best thing about it. You know, the alien design here is. You know, you can kind of call back to things you've seen before in a way, but they also feel very much like of this universe. Um, you can, I think, you can see the influence this film had going forward in terms of other sci-fi properties, especially ones that didn't take themselves seriously. Um, Futurama being like the biggest one, I think. Yeah, there is so much Futurama that kind of feeds back into this film. Yeah, especially in just like being scientific, having like all this retro future tech stuff, but also you know knowing how to not take it too seriously. That's it, and it, it really does just get that really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like even his his own future movie what was it Valerian and the Thousand Planets or whatever that movie was called. Yeah. Like like he even took influence from the Fifth Element in that movie. Like it has yeah. a lot of the same beats. Um. As the fifth element does, yeah. Which you know, I suppose you know, if you're going to go back to it, you, you probably would sort of evoke those sort of same things. Because the um, so the Mangalores, I think, was the enemy. Wasn't what we were talking about? But um, the Mangalores, yeah. yeah sorry, yeah. Sorry, you, you went wrong. There was a 
go back to the other characters that you were thinking of in terms of name. It's cool. We got there. Um, <laughs> so let's uh, sort of get into it story-wise. It opens very normally, doesn't it, really? Because... Um, 1914. 1914. Was the year. <laughs> yeah. Very, the mummy vibes coming at me with this one, you know, in terms of like, oh, okay, we're in Egypt and it's in the you know, early 1900s and I have put the right film on, haven't I, sort of thing for a second <laughs> like that. <laughs> it's kind of like when you first started watching Stargate, you yeah. know, they kind of had the same idea. <laughs> Is mad, yeah. The, the coincidences around this time, um, are not just coincidences, I think there were some very odd things going on around the, the 90s in terms of like blockbusters and studios sort of looking across and sneaking a look at what the other studio is doing and then doing something similar. You know, there was the whole deep impact uh, Armageddon thing, the whole Dante's Peak and Volcano thing, you know. You're right, there's elements here that definitely turn up elsewhere. And it doesn't feel like a coincidence when you, you look at them. I think a couple of films that came out afterwards as well, including Men in Black, kind of fed off what this did, even if it didn't do as well critically as, uh, you, know, you know, it did well enough to have an influence and have an impact on the fact we're talking about it now, well, 26 years later. Um, suggests that you know it does have an impact on people still. Um, yeah, we get this 1914 thing, this very um, set-up heavy thing of them doing an archaeological sort of survey on this pyramid, dusting all this area, and you know, showing the comedy inherent in it. You know, with the the boy who's basically falling asleep, having to hold up a, a mirror, you know, reflective surface. Uh, the guy has got light to uh, do what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, weird Luke Perry cameo as well, yeah, in this moment. <laughs> so, it's like when he was built so high, I was like, oh, okay, so he's in this it's, film. It's, it's that Drew Barrymore and Scream, yeah, thing, it's like, right? oh, it's that TV guy, he's here, sort of thing. And yeah, I think, yeah, they quickly established that you know, there's something more than the discovery they're making here, yeah, that and you get this whole wonderful farce straight away with the poison gag you know we've seen it in films like the princess bride where you get you know, some funny take on you know the whole idea of trying to poison someone surreptitiously and it just not going right and you know it's a nice sort of cheeky little start to the way this goes and you know quickly sort of descends into this thing of you know like now an alien ship's come down and our aliens are here and everything's really escalating really quickly and it, it sets up that sense of chaos that the rest of the film really goes for in that, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Like, you see this giant ship come in, and then it's funny because, like, they show, like, the silhouettes and, you know, Luke Perry's characters all terrified and all that, but then they show them, and they look so comedic in a way. (laughs) It's this mechanical, (laughs) huge, rounded mechanical beings with this tiny little head that's a robot. Um, It's almost funny in a way. You know, you go from, like, this terrifying moment for them, at least, to, you know, for us, this comedic moment of seeing these actual aliens. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, they, they come in, they, they has a key that comes out of his finger that opens this door that nobody's been able to find for, you know, the archaeologists didn't know it was there. Um, and they, yeah, they, they come in, grab the fifth element and, and yeah. the stones. Um, 
this was one of the, the the this moment right here after i watched it again this week um for for the podcast i was like well why did he have to kill the archaeologist for this yeah <laughs> like you know that part, you know, confused me. Confused me because I never caught on to it up until now. It's like, well, if why did the why was the priest tasked with killing these people, finding this stuff? Um, yeah, I, I think the idea is it was supposed to be an exclusive knowledge. You know? Like no one outside of this group can know mm-hmm. this, and anyone else is you know punishable with death. And so makes sense, I suppose. Um, and I, I think it also just sort of generates that drama and the uncertainty you get in those opening moments of mm-hmm. like they're they're friendly but they're not friendly sort of thing like that you know it's, it's, yeah because you know. they did kill the archaeologists themselves yeah <laughs> <laughs> mm. so yeah we go from this uh, thing with the warning that you know they'll come back to protect Earth when the time matters you know from this great evil that's coming we learn of this fifth element that will sort of resurrect every 5,000 years, which conveniently is 300 years in the future uh, from this point. And, yeah, then we jump to 300 years into that future and uh, start getting a taste of what life is like in that time. Um, but before we go that, you know, creature design was a thing we were sort of going on about. You know, and, you know, as goofy as they can look in that moment and, you know, like, the funny thing I found with like that um, that finger key thing was it, it seemed reminded me of Red Dwarf and Crichton, like having like the, 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 the it, it, and that I I couldn't escape that. But yeah, you know, again, it's a film that it works. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I absolutely would not be surprised if he got inspiration from Red Dwarf, Doctor Who, those kind of shows for a lot mm. of the creature designs here. Well, yeah, I mean, there's an episode of Doctor Who that basically um, copies that whole. New York verticality thing in mm-hmm. terms of like uh, traffic and you know, having terrible things lower down and uh, yeah. you know, to be yeah, higher. Yeah, with, with David Tennant, I remember you, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that was a thing I thought of very quickly after sort of seeing those scenes again and going, oh, yeah, it's that, isn't it? It's like that. But, but it's that idea, right? Like, oh, in the future, we're going to have flying cars. Like, they nailed that into our heads for so long and then he just took off with it. He's like, yeah, well, what's yeah. that flying car? <laughs> To this day, we still don't have flying cars. <laughs> well, yeah, we got like we got a couple of centuries to get there still. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So those creatures, you know, throughout the film are really just fantastic. You know, like sure, they're the sort where you can see the joins, you can tell makeup or rubber prosthetics or whatever, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's like it still feels real and believable. You you were talking about CG in horror and how that can sort of affect, you know, how that impacts you. I think CG in general, when not applied properly, can sort of numb you to that sense of wonder, you know, where you look at something and go, okay, yeah, I, I kind of dig this because it's using real things and, you know, th- th- you know real costumes, real prosthetics, real um, animatronics and stuff, and it works brilliantly. And... We get this sort of jump forward, as we said, and seeing all these creatures in the early going. And we get that little quick impact of what this great evil can do. It's basically just like a giant ball of fire. And, you know, it's like they do the very traditional, stereotypical military thing of let's shoot it, see if we can kill it sort of thing. 
despite being warned that nah that won't work it'll probably just make it stronger let's try anyway they try anyway and uh yeah it, it doesn't go very well unfortunately for them um you know it gets stronger and stronger and you as i said you get this instant thing where you, you get a sense of what this great evil can do you know as a thing um i wanted to ask you like early on here like considering how uniformly this great evil is portrayed as just being like a giant planet of death yeah how how did that sort of fare for you in this story um you know i i always looked at it like okay it, it's essentially just evil right that, yeah. that's what it is like how do you make evil manifested mm. um you know and Obviously, you can do plenty of things. A lot of people take, you know, Lucifer is is that in Christianity. Yeah. Um, but but there's there's if it's just pure evil, it's just you know I, I don't want to say it's like an emotion or something, but it, it it is what it is. So how do you take something that's supposed to be just pure evil and manifest it? As far as it just being a planet, um, I think it was designed for that because they wanted to show, uh its power and its destruction um if you if you manifest it as you know a normal human uh or a human-like figure like how can i possibly believe that this thing can wipe out civilization you know so you created something you manifested something that could do that a giant meteor or whatever you want to want want it to be will wipe everything out instantly um so that's how i took that for me you know so so it, it, obviously if uh i would have wanted it to be something else um because i wanted like like go back then i'm pretty sure it's okay for what it was but seeing how many movies i've seen now um i would want it to be something else just so it would have more of a personality i guess you can say because yeah. you know in this movie what what is it it's, it's just that um, it talks a little bit uh, later on, and then that's it. <laughs> I say, yeah, it's very. It's not really a, protag- a protagonist, you know. Yeah. Or protagonist, yeah. Yeah, I, I liken it to you know the whole moon in Majora's Mask thing, you know, where it's like, it's it's a background thing, it's a MacGuffin for the story, blah blah blah, but you know it serves a purpose, and you know it's always a threat, you know. Even when it's gone away, the idea is it's going to keep coming and, you know, it's going to hit Earth or whatever. And your main sort of question throughout the film is like, well, how does this woman take on a planet-sized threat like that? So what is the thing that will get her to... What is the power she's going to get that will, you know, take this on? It is one of those things, like, we never see what she looked like in her original form. Mm. You know, we only saw the gauntlet that she had, so we don't know what she was like before. Obviously, now she's got a more humanoid form. Um, but was that how she always looked? Was it always a she? Does it yeah. even have a gender? Um, we just don't know those things because you know they just didn't write those things. They didn't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is a movie. Who cares that... about that backstory stuff? Yeah, but then I I look at the rest of the movie and go, you know, there's a multitude of sexuality going on here. You know, it's everything is anything, you know, and that's a great way to work this place. You know, that's maybe the advancement rings truest, you know, in the sense that, you know, 
you can be yourself in any way, which way you can. You, mm-hmm. know, you only have to look at Ruby Road, for example, as a, an example of a character that has gained a better following in the years that have passed because it's someone being flamboyantly their self and out there, you know, um, and kind of not defining themselves as a gender. Yeah, so it, it is a great thing like that. Perfect being. She can be whatever she wants, right? Yeah. She's essentially God in this movie. <laughs> exactly, you know, and I I like that when they get into it and, you know, where Ian Holm sort of goes, oh, it's a she sort of thing like that. He's not, like, disappointed, you know, because they build it up early on that it'd be like him, it's him, it's him, like that. Mm. But, and you know, he's kind of, like, giddy about the idea that it's not the established idea. And that, that was nice. I, I like that. And, like I said, it really just fits the rest of the movie where, you know, you are in a, an era where, you know, you're interacting with species from other planets you know, and on the regular, you know, what does it matter what anyone is as a human being or any humanoid shape at that point? Yeah. We get that. Um, I think it's a good early time to sort of get into the costume design as well, where Jean-Paul Gaultier um, designs a lot of this. And you can tell, you know, if, you, if anyone knows Jean-Paul Gaultier from in the 90s, you know, in the UK and Europe in gen- general, he was on a uh, late night show called Euro Trash, <laughs> uh, where you know they basically looked at the very uh, risque and exotic things happening in Europe. But, you know, it was softcore porn basically uh, on local television in the early hours uh, of a Friday night or so, and it was just odd, you know, like that. But yeah, you know, he was on that. He was he was one of the the hosts of that show with Antoine de Car. And yeah, that's pretty much how most people in this country remember him, rather than the guy who's a fashion designer or has you know perfumes and aftershavers and stuff. And I I love that that kind of makes sense for me that you know he is you know this very horny French designer because I look at the costume design, especially for <laughs> for Milojovic, where it's like makes sense, you know. As someone who is, you know, basically a model getting to wear the costume she does throughout this, it just feels very um, typical, I suppose is the best way to put it. But they're, they're iconic costumes at this point now, aren't they? When you think about it, the two oh, main absolutely. ones she wears. You know, like that. Uh, yeah, I see cosplayers at conventions to this day wearing her outfit from this movie. Uh, yeah, and undeniable. I think... Like even Bruce Willis's you know, subversion of his whole Bruce Willis wearing a vest thing, you know, which he'd done in several movies beyond Die Hard, mm-hmm. where it's his "I'll be back" to at that point. Yeah, to have it, yeah, you know, when the first time he's turned away from you and you see the back of it, and it's very, um, it's got very feminine sort of style to the back of it, and it's like, oh, okay, so yeah, they're kind of even changing that up, you know, and the fact that you know he's got the blonde hair as well and things like that. <laughs> It's nice. It feels distinctly Bruce Willis as a character, but it's still comfortable in this world, you know. And I love that about it. They they found a way to make him work as Bruce Willis in a film like this, you know. Because again, you know, for everything that's happened to the guy in recent years, and where he's ended up just doing stuff 
because he has to, you know, and, and you know, he as a person is sort of degrading because of the problems he's had. It's, um, yeah. you know, that, that's been difficult to see. But then you see stuff like this and you kind of get a reminiscence back to the Bruce Willis we used to have, you know, where he, where he was, people always seem to think he was serious, I think, because of Die Hard and things, you know, not forgetting that he was in stuff like Moonlighting, you know, and he really sort of established himself as a comedic actor in some ways when he wanted to be and to play for laughs when needed. And, you know, while he doesn't sort of outright do this, he, it's probably one of the best balances of Bruce Willis as, you know, a comedic action star. You know, and one of the main things why we say, uh, you know, it fits with that idea of what um, Guardians of the Galaxy does these days. You know, mm -hmm. he would be a perfect fit for that movie. You know, that character would be perfect for now. And he's almost like the template, you know, for, for characters like that. And... Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it goes down though to having that really great sort of costume design, and you know, yeah, you know, the hair and makeup, everything works for that character in designing that. And it's, you know, Gary Oldman, I think, gets the most interesting sort of deal in this film in that regard, <laughs> you know, because oh, my daughter was just sat through the film, just constantly questioning: Is he a cyborg? Is he human? Is it plastic? <laughs> Is it part of his head? Like that. Yeah, when it came to the where his head's bleeding, he's going, well, he can't be a cyborg then, because look, he's bleeding there off his head like that. Just and yeah, and at that point, I was like, I don't know, I just don't know. <laughs> I don't know what the hell's going on at this point. <laughs> but, uh... That's the beauty of it, though, right? Is, is the costume designs, like you said, are so unique. It, it's stuff you would see in those weird, uh, like runway shows where yeah. they have the most outlandishly crazy shit wearing that nobody will ever wear in public. That's what these outfits are in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like that with, like... I didn't want to say Star Wars, but I think it's more in line with, like, um, 60s, 70s TV sort of sci-fi, you know, in, in terms of a lot of the way it's done. Um, it's sort of good to go on to the next sort of section of this is... When we sort of first see Bruce Willis in this film, which isn't long after what we've been talking about, and we get to see his um, you know, Brooklyn apartment, and it is this sort of retro-future griminess going on there. Instantly, you know, again, the set design is another aspect of this. You know, As we were saying earlier, lots of daylight scenes, lots of open scenes, and a familiarity that you know, with what was... was you know, it is now, and a little bit of future stuff, kind of reminiscent of, you know, what, um, you know, Rudy Scott did with Alien, you know, in terms of having that sort of, it feels futuristic, but it also feels out of date, you know, at the same time, and I love that about it. That, his apartment in that is like a wonder in that regard, and again, brings back those sort of Red Dwarf memories for me of um, just feeling like slightly naff, but also functional and given it, the closer we get to a, a future, you just look at it and go, oh, it, it, I, I could see something being as ordinary as this with those little differences, you know, like the whole, <laughs> the whole refrigerator freezer turns into a shower just by a press of a button sort of thing like mm -hmm. that. Like that. You know, even if that was just done for like the whole point of that gag that they do with it, it's still... Really cool functional stuff. There's a, and 
I love that because it means it doesn't date in the same way a lot of sci-fi can, where it's like, oh, this is the idea of the future in this year. You know, it's set far enough ahead where I think even in in that year, when we get to 2257, um, you could still look at it and go, oh, okay. Yeah, that, that's kind of cute that they thought it would be exactly like this, and but it still works because of it. You know, it's a very distinct idea. Yeah, I think sci-fi is always fun like that when you just really dig into your idea of what you think the future will look like and you understand that we don't always lose what we've had before to get there. Yeah, that's actually a really good way of putting it. Um, I also see it as, again, this like premonition that he had of what the future would look like where, mm. you know, he's got this New York high rise, essentially is where Bruce Willis lives. Yeah. Um, but you look at it, it's like one room, literally, that's all it is. It's just one yeah. room, right? <laughs> that just sort of changes and chops as you go. Yeah, it's nice. Well, it shows us the shower, but where's the toilet? Like, where do you poop? <laughs> where's that at? <laughs> Can't come in drunk um, late at night with the wrong setting, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like him seeing it. Okay, a New York high rise is like $5,000 a month or something. And it's literally just one room. And that's kind of where we're going now. You look at these high-rise apartments in New York City right now, this is what you're getting for ridiculous prices. But yeah, the the design of it, it it almost kind of reminds me of Judge Dredd in a way. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that. Especially with how the police work in in this. And the the police costumes are the best. I love it so much because they have the stupid helmet. And the best thing is like they're all overweight cops. Like, you just, like, making fun of the cops because of that. I don't know. Like, there's just these big people who can't fit through shit. I mean, yeah, in a good sort of um, Red Dwarf moment, actually, uh, when they do the chase later, like that, you have those two cops mm. just basically saying, yeah, oh, fuck it, we don't want to bother with this sort of thing. And one of them is um, Captain Hollister, who's actually, like, the, the uh, main guy running Red Dwarf before everything goes to shit and returns later. In the later series, um, you know, when they sort of resurrect the ship. And he also has that appearance in um, Aliens in the director's cut, you know, when they have that sort of, um, he's running Hadley's Hope as well. So it's, a, it's you know, that was a nice, cool sort of sci-fi legacy moment. There's a few like that, I think, in this film where you get actors doing what they do and they've been in stuff before and you're like, oh, wow, yeah. it's Even that's kind of respectful how they have this person in this role. Well, one of my favorite scenes, actually, and it's like, you know, the, the smallest, non-important scenes, like when he's eating the Thai food, you know, the big window is open. You know, he's got his little cat eating Thai food with him. And the guy just has his own, essentially, ship. It's a car, yeah. but it's designed like a ship. And he he's just like a delivery driver, a food delivery guy or a yeah. taco stand or whatever. Um, and he just goes to people's windows and like, hey, let's eat, you know. I thought that was so cool, and the design of that, the the whole boat and how it looks old, like you know, traditional old ship, um, but it's in the future. You know, it's really cool how that's done. I mean, yeah, again, that's kind of closer to what we're getting to because we've had this sort of rise in the idea of food coming to you uh, beyond mm-hmm. like the normal realms of it. So, yeah, that, that feels like that would be like the natural evolution that you know. Not only is the, the, does the food come to you, the restaurant comes to you, sort of thing like that, and you just have your whole thing come to your door. I love that scene. Yeah, it's great because you do just having that sudden realization that 
It looks like his apartment, but he's also eating. So what's going on like that? And then you sort of <laughs> get that moment like that. So yeah, it's yeah, it's fantastic. And again, just great world building of just this idea of what New York is like at this point. You know, I think they keep that going throughout all the time they're there. I mean, you know, by seeing that you know while the traffic goes up in layers, you know, trains basically <laughs> yeah. go sideways down and all this stuff and. Yeah, I love the verticality of this New York, you know, where they use all this, you know, size they've built up over the years. And now, you know, people can exist not only on every level in terms of the buildings, but in terms of like the foot traffic and the air traffic or whatever is all going on. If there is foot traffic. Yeah, I mean, foot <laughs> I there is not, foot not for long, I'd imagine, but it's like... <laughs> But yeah. The other one I, I want to mention really quick is um, the idea that everything looks the same. Yeah. Uh, kind of how it is nowadays, at least here in the States. Like they build apartment buildings, they build condos, they all look exactly the same. Mm. Like there's no difference between the two. And I thought it was great how, you know, in the beginning of the movie, you know, he hears the doorbell, he opens the door, and is the dude trying to rob him, and he's got the stupid hat. Yeah. of the hallway <laughs> just like the hallway because everything looks the same it's so easy to, to yeah, do I mean, it they do it later with the the um the door gag where you know they take the name off the door and because they're also identical they're like mm, well this one's got the <laughs> name on it so it must be this one's sort of thing like that it, it, it's yeah you're right because even here like there's this growing obsession especially in like more well-off houses where they'll basically redesign them to be just these gray and just gray things, you know, like different shades of gray uh, all throughout, like the front, the roof, the windows, whatever like that. And it's just so depressing in, in what they look like, because they all look like the same house. And then next mm. to these houses that are like have a rich history. And, and it it's unfortunate. It is unfortunate that you have that. But yeah. So yeah, I think, again, it's just one of those things that this film does really well yeah in terms of having a little prophetic sort of uh nature to it uh without like being like nailed on oh my god this is spooky sort of thing it's it just little things where you can see someone being very observant of life and how it goes and where it goes like that just and culture in general which given everyone involved with this culture being like a big thing in it makes sense you know and then they come back with that guy shaving with pliers. That was fucking incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow. Uh, so we get like this whole thing of like the birth of Lilu, you know, um, which is fairly standard stuff. You know, but it's it's kind of cool still, I think, you know, in the way it's done. You know, that whole just sort of being built up from that one charred hand as they, they, they got from it. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. and the, that whole escape, which is just again, the whole sense of this film is just having a bit of farce nature to it, you know, where everything is slightly comedic in how it's done, very Chaplin esque, you know, Buster Keaton sort of style, you know, where everything is very physical comedy. And, you know, when, you know, Lily basically just bonks that guy on the side of the cabinet you know, that she's in, like that, it, it's so light in the way it's done, but. It, it's <laughs> the way he just drops. It, it, it's funny. I, I really enjoyed that. And that whole escape um, is brilliant. You know, I think, again, one of the sort of more iconic scenes from this film, you know, the whole her jumping from, you know, that, that mm -hmm. ledge like that. And before that was a very sort of 
modern Marvel style scene, actually, when you think about it, in terms of the where the, the cops are asking her to stop and do that, and then she just ignores them, and then the cop has like the line, the one liner about it, and like that. But then we get the whole, you know, we've, we've been getting to this point, you know, the, with Bruce Willis and Miller, and they're, they're going to meet and they're going to have this moment, and we get that whole sort of chase. Um, for New York, which, as I said, is made more interesting by the way they've designed it, you know, with trains going a certain angle and cars going a certain angle, and you go beneath, like, the mist area into the bottom areas where it's all dodgy and horrible, and cops won't follow you there for long sort of thing is the idea. Yeah, yeah, he mentions if they don't follow you after a mile, they don't follow you. Yeah, <laughs> so, and then he says maybe two miles when they carry on. <laughs> Again, it shows you the laziness of the cops in this future where it's like they yeah. don't care. <laughs> yeah, which again sort of sells the um, seriousness of what their situation was. Like, oh, okay, well, they're still following sort of thing. And yeah, it's a really cool chase you know, at that point. And we get this sort of first sort of banter, I suppose, between you know Corbin and Lilo. Yeah, you know, where he doesn't understand what she's saying, but you know, he's sort of grows to you know, respect her in his own way, I suppose. When she sort of learns English off the back of the poster in the back of his car and you know, he defies the cops in what he does and like that. And it's it's very shorthand the way they do it and you know, you have no reason to believe why he would do it. I think it matters. I think because <laughs> the basic explanation when you get through the whole film, it's like he just decided that he was horny for this one and he loves this one, and that's it. You know, like that. <laughs> it, it's a romantic comedy in that sense. You know, he, he wants to be with her. She speaks a different language. She's been dead, well, asleep for 5,000 years, and, you know, like she knows nothing. And, you know, it, it's about them meeting in the middle, you know, in terms of their humanity. And that, well, you know, in retrospect, that works. But, you know, at the time, you're looking at it and going, why would he help her? You know, given everything that's going on and the impact it'll have on him, we can't quite understand. But it does very much come down to the idea that man is horny, he will do anything, sort of thing. <laughs> for, for me, I see it a little different. I see it as, and you see it uh, when she's first, you know, when she first emerges after they reconstruct her. Um, yeah. from you know the general and the and the doctor guy who who runs the program is they're just in awe of her because yeah. she is the perfect being and I think that's and, and they show that throughout the whole movie like every time she encounters somebody new they're in awe of her right yeah. um and I think that's what really that that's what drove him is like he I, I don't want to say it's like a spiritual mystical thing but that's kind of what it what they're kind of given off is like Essentially, it's how you would imagine seeing God, right? You'd be in awe if God appeared to you and said, holy shit, you know? Uh, and I think he sees that, yeah. too, and, you know, he just wants to, to be part of her light and her goodness. Because yeah. when they do the opposite, when they show the evil, when the evil communicates with anybody, they're trying to avoid it at all times. Mm. You know, like Gary Oldman, he doesn't want to talk to it in the movie. Mm -hmm. You know, he's terrified. The general was there. Everybody who came in contact with it wanted to avoid it. Yeah. So I think that that's how kind of how they 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 did it with her is like everybody wants to be around her because she's given off good energy. Yeah, I um, suppose 
it comes down to Corbin Dallas being quite, you know, I don't want to say simple and like stupid, but you know, he is a very basic person, you know, and he can't quite grasp what he's feeling. And so yeah. maybe he translates it as that, you know, that it's love and lust and that's it. He he talks on the phone with his boss, if you remember, he talks yeah. describing her and yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. So yeah, maybe it's just that. It's a, a thing that you know is very common in humanity. You have this if if you don't have the vocabulary or the understanding to explain why you love something or why you're into something, it does just sound like you know very basic, like you're infatuated sort of thing. Yeah, and and that's it. So yeah, in a way, that's probably quite smart writing, really, you know, to have a character like that where their love and you know holiness, if you will, is just. <laughs> their way of reacting to what's going on when you think of um the more educated people i suppose in this film um they're the ones that sort of revere her in a different way you know like ian holm again is a great example there and yeah he definitely worships her in a very different way you know, he's um in awe of her in that very religious manner mm-hmm. so yeah it, yeah it's a very good point gary very good point indeed um so then we get to see Gary Oldman for the first time really and his his southern accent and his <laughs> extravagant costume I mean man he he had, <laughs> the things people have had to pull off over the years in terms of like sci-fi especially um I think people always bring up Eddie Redman in um Jupiter Ascending that's it oh okay, yeah 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 where people bring up how you know, he just feels ill at will and who he is and what he is in that film that you know, the film where Channing Tatum is basically a human dog squirrel thing. Yeah, his his design, his costume is so iconic. I feel like I've seen yes. it uh, from villains in like every sci-fi medium I've experienced. Mm. <laughs> like I that mean, design has been used in so many things. I feel um, yes, like it's it's the perfect bad guy design. <laughs> it, it, it's a perfect rakish villain design, isn't it? Yeah, it's all just again. This is what comes from having a fashion designer and doing your costumes like that. I think everything about the early shots of him is not showing his face; it's the back of him and the costume, showing like the contours that go up. Yeah, yeah, the costume going up into his head and like the way it looks mm-hmm. instantly makes it interesting and like you, you want to know more like that. And in any other film, it. When he turns around, it wouldn't have worked, you know, because you would have gone, that's Gary Oldman looking like a daft twat, you know, and here <laughs> it's like, for everything you've learned at this point from this film, it, he's just a character, you know, he ceases to be Gary Oldman. It's one of those roles where he just kind of loses himself into the character. And, you know, he's not even like the thing you talk about in this film at all. Really, you know, he's a highlight, sure, because he's Gary Oldman. But at the same time, he does that thing that he does a lot in his later career, where he just blends into a film. It's like, yeah, he's easygoing. You know, he he works for this film in every distinct way he should. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even the way they treat him in this film isn't like he's the big bad because you know we've established the big bad is this fucking big planet of fire. But the great thing is, is like, 
he's he's technically the the physical manifestation of the protagonist, right? Yeah. In this movie, and the best thing about it, he never crosses paths with the hero of the story, Bruce Willis. Like they never have a single scene together. <laughs> that was the fun thing to sort of come back to on this one. When you do get to that scene later on, you just suddenly realize, like, they never even got, they never met. That was it. They <laughs> just like, like just, and it's all very anticlimactic. And it, again, it's just one of those things that works for this film because yeah, they're telling it in a certain way where you're just like, yeah, yeah, it, it's playing with the idea of what you would expect for these things. And he is basically what he, he's a, he's a salacious crumb to the big bad jab of the hut, you know, he's just there nattering away while everything's going on. And, and, but they're indirectly connected because Bruce yeah. Willis works for him. Yeah. Because <laughs> he gets fired by him. Yeah, it, it's mad the way it all works out. And I, I love that. And <laughs> there's a lot of that in this film where you just have a lot of these little connections and the farcical nature of making those connections like a comedic moment. Yeah. Um, so... One of those actually is actually involves Oldman is the uh, choking scene, yeah, where mm. Ian Holmes there, you know, like that he's gone on all about this power he's got and this technology he's got, like that, and then he chokes, you know, on his food, effectively, and then no one can help him. There's no machine that will help him stop choking like that. And Ian Holmes very quickly to sort of point this out and go. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, yeah, for everything you've got, yeah, you can't do that. And then, yeah, he saves his life, blah, 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 like that. Just a bit like that bit where he just gets that fucking creature up to, <laughs> just like begging the creature to just pat him on the back. And it's just like, this little, <laughs> little, little pink elephant thing. Yeah, and he's just like, the, the creature's looking like, what the fuck am I going to do? Sort of thing, like that. It, it just, I love it. <laughs> it, do, it did sort of really send home the idea. It's like, you think you're so powerful, but you're just, you are a pawn. You know, you, like things will just not work out for you if it, if uh, those who don't want them to like that. And yet it, that's a good early warning sign for what that, uh, what the film does. But if we're talking fast, I think like the scene that really sells it for me, you know, something that feels almost Clouseau-esque, you know, in the way it goes, is that whole sort of fast with the Floston tickets, you know, where everyone's trying to, you know, first it's, you know, the military trying to give the tickets to Corbin like that to make him go, you know, the ruse of the fact that actually, well, we're giving you these tickets because you're going on a mission for us. And like, just doing this whole constant round about who's getting the tickets, who is pretending to be Corbin Dallas, who is Corbin Dallas sort of thing. And just like you said, that whole thing about, the airport being <laughs> garbage No sheet. security, people just walking around with guns and shit. <laughs> you like that. And then, like, the only time security ever really goes up is when someone's mean, you know, rude to the, <laughs> the person at the desk, and that's it, like that. Yeah. It, it, which, you know, is the ideal way it should be, if we're honest. But, yeah, the constant back and forth of that, where everyone's claiming to be the person, and then different ways people are getting onto the plane. It's beautiful. It, it does just make the whole thing feel light in a way that I really enjoy with this film where you know, it has that sort of caper vibe where we got to go and do this big heist where we get this thing and whatever and with unconventional teammates and whatever and different teams are going into it 
and yeah that scene just is perfect at showing that you know where you get repeated scenes of the same idea you know going up to the desk saying my tickets blah 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 and and the the, the different results you get from it and yeah it, it's just a fantastic scene one of my favorite f- scenes in the whole film i think just because you do get that whole thing of like the airport being a garbage heap at the same time as being an airport and the very like half-hearted like apology for the mess sort of thing. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. but he just sort of says what like that like he hasn't noticed the fucking <laughs> shit pile of garbage just everywhere. Yeah, it's it's like this the super dangerous but like you know the the ships fly on like what we believe is like nuclear power or something. Mm. But they changed the cell, so it can just blow up the whole planet if it wanted to. <laughs> yeah, you know, that that whole thing was just. Uh... I love it. I like love it, it. It's such a dangerous way. It looks so fun to live in, but it's such a dangerous world to actually live in this world. I feel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's it. And I think that's the idea, isn't it? It's just everything's done without any care or meaning. And again, that's one of those things that kind of fits the way work has gone for many people, where it's just thrust into the even more dangerous situation than it's the only way to live or sort of thing. It's just, it's nuts that anyone would ever be put in a situation clearly underqualified for it to just be lugging around <laughs> fucking nuclear. <laughs> yeah, I guess like, I like just slamming it on the ground and shit. Yeah. And that, it just, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy. But again, it shows the, distinct style of this film where everything is understood that this will be the way it is you know and you will uh <laughs> sort of get this idea constantly that people aren't caring about at all you know they, they are just doing whatever is given to them i think a lot of credit for a lot of the scenes in the movie as well have to go to uh ian holm obviously yeah. he he does such a phenomenal job oh, uh, yeah. in every scene that he's in uh, whether he's scared or you know he's frustrated, he he does it so well. But also his disciple, the yeah. the the kid who's always afraid of everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think he nails that role so well. Like when he turns around to look at the trash, and then he sees Corbin Dallas walking up, and he just gets terrified and freezes up. <laughs> and you just like I thought he was gonna kill me. It's like when you get back, to <laughs> yeah, he just comes he, and takes he barely says anything that <laughs> suggests that. Even if it plays on the idea that like the bartender is always there to listen to you, but in this case yeah. it's a robot and it doesn't give a shit what you're saying because it has no emotions. <laughs> yeah, that's a fantastic. So yeah, all round, that's just a fantastic scene. And then I think we get to the point that is probably the most divisive for many people with this film is Chris Tucker as Ruby Road. Yeah, coming on board, but. As a character, I think it's one of the most interesting ones in terms of how timely it's ended up becoming. Is this is a character that is essentially akin to the modern day influencer in so many ways, you know, like TikTok, Instagram sort of style people who are just living their lives online, in this case, just on like radio effectively here, like Mm -hmm. toll fruistic. Again, that sort of retro future idea still getting the point of where we were actually going in the future and yeah it that to me made the character far more interesting on this rewatch because like i said i haven't watched it for years you know so and all this has happened in that time 
you know, in terms of like um, YouTubers, influencers, streamers, whatever. And, you know, it is the perfect sort of representation of that from a time before it was ever even close to a thing. I, I already found that a fascinating character to come back to. How did you sort of feel with that coming back to sort of Ruby Red? You know, I actually, I have always loved this character. Um, yeah. I think at, at the time, I don't think there's any actor who could have done the role that he did. No. I mean, it is really impressive, really, when you go look at it. It's like... Yeah, I, I think it was designed for him. So like, yeah. to, to wear the outfits that he wore and be okay wearing those outfits um, at the time for him uh, was amazing. Um, the hairstyle he had was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like completely different on the next scene. Um, but the hairstyle and the fact that Chris Tucker is so good at talking so fast. We're like, what the <laughs> hell did he just say? You know, and he does it in this movie a lot. Like, there's a lot of scenes where he's yeah. talking so fast. You're like, what the hell is he saying? Um, I don't think there's anybody at the time who could have done it. I think the costume designer probably, like Chris Tucker, probably told him, "Was like, do whatever the hell you want with me." Yeah, <laughs> you know, Luke <laughs> like... was like, "Let's do it. Let's run away with this character." It's like he wrote that character specifically for Chris Tucker. Because yeah. I don't see anybody else who could have played that role. So again, it's one of those that feels like a character that has naturally evolved into characters that we see now. Diluted, for sure. But yeah, it's another benchmark sort of character in this film where you're like, I can see a lot of like um, you know, comic relief characters that have come in recent mm-hmm. years that have a lot of what that character has. I mean, the way you look at it back then is like, it's kind of like Prince, you know? Like, but yeah. on prints on speed, if you will, you know, it just constant, you know, jittery over the top. And yeah, <laughs> the scene, I, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, if Prince was a huge inspiration to that character, too. Yeah, I mean, it, there's so much about it. I mean, the high pitched voice, but I think just having that sort of accelerated again, I want to make that red dwarf comparison and say it kind of also reminds me of the cat, you know, and that Danny John Jules's character. Like, so it's that mixed with Prince, you know, and that, even that character had a bit of Prince to it. It, it is like a character that has this, you know, very vain, egotistical self, you know, but is also, you know, and is very much in touch with their femininity on, in a way, but is also like like the ultimate Lafario, if you will, you know, at the same time, shown very, very um, strongly in that scene as the uh, plane is taking off. Uh, and we're getting those different, <laughs> we're getting those interspliced sort of things going on at the same time, and it's interspliced with that whole um, oral sex scene he has. <laughs> what like does air? <laughs> I just, I, I forgot it was there, and my daughter was watching the film, and thank God she's too young to know what the fuck was going on because Christ Almighty, that would have been a conversation to have to have. Sorry, that she didn't ask, and I was like, I was dreading it because like she's gonna ask, she's gonna ask a question about what the fuck's going on here. Like that. <laughs> just, I think Chris Tucker's fast talking kind of navigates away from it. It's like everything. It does help, doesn't it? Yeah, that and just like jumping to something else happening every few seconds. It's like, oh my god. But yeah, that, but yeah. Yeah, separately from that, it's a, that scene is just like again brilliant use of com- sex and comedy, and just the the scene that, that sort of cut between this, you know, the way it ends up being 
it's majestic. Again, it's for everything we say about this film being silly, you know, it, it is genuinely beautiful in how it's shot and how the scenes are interspersed. And this, again, is just one of those great examples of just like connecting different characters to a scene. And, 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 and it it's sing. also, for me, I took his character also. It's funny when like he's walking down the hall and the girls line up for his autograph and he just takes like a paintbrush and just like walks across. Yeah. Like they're like all Asian girls too. And yeah. like it's almost as if like his personality was designed as like some famous J pop or K pop star. Yeah, again, it's really <laughs> relevant in that regard, isn't Especially it? Especially with the outfit that he had. Um I thought that was funny. I was like, why are they all Asian? Like, what is, why are they, what are you trying to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's something that didn't connect with me back then. But no. now when I know of K-pop and J-pop and how insane their fans are, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely does. Kind of fast forwarding closer towards this sort of end period here. Um, we get on board, you know, everything. We get to this resort planet, if you will. Which is a bizarre thing in itself because it's like promising like um the Hawaii style experience, but it's not fucking Hawaii, it's a fucking planet that's an ocean. That's it. And you just have to do on a boat. Yeah, and, and the best thing about that planet too is like I assumed it's gonna be on the planet, but no, they're just flying in space. Yeah. Like why, a... why? <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be at a resort. And again, I love that. It's just like again, that's really sharp. Yeah, but by modern standards, where you just look at it and go, yeah, the idea that you are being promised the feeling or something, but it's nothing alike, you know, like that. And how many tech startup nonsense things have we seen in the past where it's like, oh, yeah, we're promising you something that's really in charge, of, you know, keeping in touch with what you used to like. And then it's like, yeah, but you've done it shit and to make you money sort of thing like that. And it works on people. So, yeah, that in itself was like, again, a really subtle bit of uh, the film where you were just looking at, yeah, yeah, I get you, I get where you're going. But, you know, the big thing here is, of course, the diva and that whole thing and setting up one of, again, another one of the big scenes in this movie, which is like her singing. You know, she's supposed to be carrying the uh, the stones that they come for. That's why everyone's coming here to uh, do this. And again, you're having this constant thing between the different characters who come here to get these stones and how that plays out. Now, this is great for several reasons, because not only do you have like the singing bit, which, you know, given everything else going on, you wouldn't think would be like a highlight. But it is because you know, it was designed in a way that you know, the, sing the person who was singing, an actual opera singer, could not sing the song as it was because, you know, it was... It was impossible for a human to sing like that. So, you know, I think there were parts of the song where they had to cut things up to make it work, you know, and do it in little chunks like that. And I believe you can sort of hear that in certain sections of the song. But it's really cool. And, you know, again, interspersed with action that's going on elsewhere, as like stuff is escalating, the song is escalating. And, you know, you have the Lilu, you know, showing off her action chops, you know, during this bit. And again, in that really brilliant way where it's like the choreograph of the scene is just pfft, choreography that's the word but it was just amazingly um simple and like almost cartoonish but in a way that just worked again for this film mm -hmm. 
and then you know you get all that that's all happened you know then chaos happens with the whole you know the, the mangalores coming on and shooting everything up and then you you get bruce willis getting to do bruce willis things you know really for the first time in this film you know mm-hmm. and it is just like you know proper like a it's almost a parody of what bruce willis is and the way he goes about things which again i think is a very deliberate choice but it does just make him look like a badass in this environment because he is just like really casually just killing things and like left right and center and like like right down to that whole hostage situation in the end where it's like oh all the tension's going to be there and it's like nope fuck it, bang bullet for between the eyes sort of thing uh yeah it is just and again another use, great use of ian holm in that scene yeah that for me is just probably the last sort of big sort of spectacle in the film because everything else after this is very much just sort of wrapping things up in terms of where they're going to go with the um message of the film but yeah how did you find that whole sort of opera section i suppose is the best way to put it i absolutely loved it um i think it it was a little divisive for a lot of people because it started off as you know this wonderfully beautiful sung opera song right and then it goes into like this opera poppy type version of it afterwards um but either way i thought it fit perfectly with what was happening in the in in the scenes yeah um i one of my favorite parts about this whole part of this movie is i is chris tucker being essentially the narrator of the entire scene (laughs) to the whole world (laughs) and he's not narrating it like you know planet earth or anything like that you know like a real he's narrating it like a TikToker would narrate. Yeah, he's reacting. <laughs> it's a reaction video. To... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I absolutely loved it. You know, he's like, I'm going to go and see what's going on. <laughs> he's like, just crawling around. Um, I loved it. I absolutely loved it because everybody else is just sitting there they're like, what the hell is Corbin? Like, he's making Corbin out to be like some mass murderer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Even the president played by, you know, the late Tommy Lester. He's yeah. like, I wonder where he's getting these skills from. <laughs> it was <laughs> great. Um, yeah. You said, you know, it, it allowed Bruce Willis to be that action star that we were growing up with, you know, from yeah. Die Hard and onwards. Um, and, like, it's literally the only time he did it in the whole movie. Uh, we knew he was, you know, ex-military, a badass, so he can do a lot of cool stuff, but we finally saw it here. Um, I loved how, how you know, the, they had like that old school fucking Gowing gun. Yeah. <laughs> like the pixie glass and a rocket on it. <laughs> I was like, what kind of shit is that? What kind of future weapon design is this? <laughs> um, but it played to a lot of the, some, of, some of the other characters that they showed off uh, when they were going to the opera from, you know, rich families and stuff. You know, you had that deaf guy who can't hear anything. You have yeah. a whole bunch of different characters. And obviously, you know, he asked him for the gun. He throws him uh freaking pool balls instead he's yeah. like what the fuck? <laughs> it's really? just like, yeah the moments <laughs> like that it is just again fantastic i think the middle of this movie is just full of the best stuff undoubtedly um i mean we haven't even talked about the thing that is pretty iconic now at this point is the constant talk of multi-pass yeah, yeah, especially yeah. Lilu's thing of multi-pass thing like that and describing herself as <laughs> Mrs. Dallas multipass and things like that. It just yeah, it's it, something I I wanted to bring up with her. Um, yeah. Throughout the whole movie, like I think she, 
Mila Jovovich, I feel like, is such an underappreciated actress when it comes yeah. to emotions, at least. She's a very emotional actress. Yeah, I think given the right material, she's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, like she's the supreme being, right? Like the almighty being, but yet she's so ignorant to the world, yeah. you know? It's almost like that whole idea of like, you know, I, I hate to bring it up, like Dragon Ball and Goku, like he's super powerful and all that, but he's so ignorant to the, how the world works. Like you can't fault him for it because he doesn't know. He never grew yeah. up with an education. Same with her. And obviously we see her watching the screen. She's, you know, doing crazy fast language reading, whatever it is she's doing to catch up on how the world obviously plays a major role going into the end of the movie. Yeah. But like her ignorance and how she portrayed it so well you know like when yeah. she has that little makeup box and she's like what the hell is it and then she uses it and she still didn't know what the hell it did <laughs> you know she does such a phenomenal job um yeah. throughout the whole movie with her performance but like we expected everybody else to kind of do what they do like i love that bruce willis is like shoot first ask questions later essentially that's the thing with me and i think my very troubled history with the resident evil movies definitely comes down to a misunderstanding of what makes her good in this yeah which mm -hmm. is like making her like the god of those films but not in a way that works you know like that there's no yeah. naivety there's no humbleness it's just it's always at the expense of other characters like that and you know that that's generally where that series goes wrong you know beyond shit writing and most of it but yeah here it's like the balance is right you know it's like she's not perfect you know they keep pointing out the fact you know she's vulnerable despite being powerful and you know we've seen that done in many films even since like that but here it, it feels honest and genuine you know she's you know herself she helped develop this language that they do in the film you know with, with luke besson because mm -hmm. you know she already knew like several languages herself you know and the fact they had they actually wrote letters and had, and had conversations in that language whilst filming this film that's how into it she was and i think yeah that's a really underappreciated part of this film is she given a role like this where she understands everything about it and has someone confident in what she can do she's yeah fantastic and someone getting the best out of her without a doubt and whenever you see the best out of mila it's always when someone gets what she can do you know, as an actress rather than yeah, you know, it, just trying to make her look cool, you know, which is, I think, the Resident Evil series is guilty of that constantly. Yeah, right? and, and I feel it's a shame because I, that movie, those movies took up so much of her career. Yeah. Um, obviously, she, she did it with her husband, who Paul W.S. Anderson, the director. Um, but I think she could have achieved so much in her career if... Yeah. Not that obligation she felt like she had to have for her husband to do those movies. Yeah. Um it's a, yeah. it's it's unfortunate because she is, I think, a very good actress. Yeah. I think considering, you know, from her background as well and to come into that, it's really admirable at that point in the career. You would think she would go on to do more and better, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. You know she got to star in a franchise where she made, you know, billions of dollars. But yeah. At the end of the day, it probably took away from her career beyond that, you know, because of it. And yet somehow those are still the best Resident Evil movies. <laughs> <laughs>
I'd like to. Yeah, yeah that's a whole other debate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we won't get into that. But yes, uh, as, as the the action scenes, I love what how Bruce Willis like. We gotta find the the leader. They won't fight without the leader. He just goes up and shoots him, and they just like give yeah. up. Like, yeah, come on. <laughs> you just so start good. carrying like half the second after. It's like, yeah, yeah, it was great. But, like but again, this is again, this is also one of those moments where Chris Tucker, I think kind of steals the show a lot yeah he, he he has such a big personality in this movie where every scene he's in he kind of just steals it right yeah um so like when bruce willis finds her and she's you know in in the ducks because zora came in and shot the whole place up yeah um chris tucker comes in he's like all exhausted he's got pain in his abdomen because he never runs in his life <laughs> and he sees the the timer with the bomb and the priest he's like well, what is this thing with these numbers you know <laughs> he knows what it is but the bomb detector is not going off so it can't be that <laughs> yeah I like that. and then just again there's loads of examples of that in the film with like oh well this can't be this because this thing hasn't happened and then yeah in very cartoon fashion that thing will happen like the alarm going off is just Straight after he says it, it's such a simple gag. Yeah, and it's like this is supposed to be this emotional moment. Like she could be dying, Bruce Willis trying to save her, and then here comes Chris Ducker with this fucking crazy ass comedy line. It, yeah. It's like the whole Marvel way of move, making movies, right? At this yeah. point, yeah. I mean, ironically, it it's like many people like like to take the piss out of Marvel by saying that it's like a certain thing, and they do that sort of heightened version of it. Uh, that, but this is it. This is that. Right, yeah, mm-hmm. Marvel's quite subdued by comparison. I can easily see the same scene playing out in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah you can. Our world comes in, he saves um, Gamora. Here comes Drax, he's like, what the fuck is this thing with all these numbers? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I think what this does, different to that, I suppose, is that it doesn't hide the cartoon elements of what it's doing you know, in terms of like the setup and the way... You think of all those moments, they all very much go back to that sort of Looney Tunes sort of aesthetic, yeah, of like obvious what's going to happen, but you, you like to see how the setup will work for the joke like that. And it's always beautiful because it's framed perfectly, it's acted in the, just the right way, like that. And again, Chris Tucker plays a great role in that because, yeah, you know, he acts the idiot and Ian Holm then just sort of acts the second idiot. And it's just, as you said, juxtaposed to what's going on. Yeah, but the other characters, it's like, oh, yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's magical. Because then it just cuts to the scene. It shows Zorg, right? Yeah. Leaving. And then it comes back to them, and it's like the camera shot, like they're all staring at the camera, the three of them. And Bruce Willis has the dumbest look on his face. And he's like, uh, (laughs) (laughs) so good. I mean, going to that, I mean, the next big thing that happens is, of course, Zorg coming back, deactivating the bomb, only for. Yeah, <laughs> Mangalore's to, to set another bomb off just uh, as he does it. And it's just, I mean, again, going back to what we were saying about that character, just it's a really low key way to go out like that, you know, not getting the big, like, hysterical villain's death. He just gets <laughs> shafted by the people he's worked with, and that's it. And yeah, it, it is great. Again, just that comedic timing is. Um, perfect and again goes back to the idea that it is like a living cartoon you know, in terms of the way things happening i think one thing we, we we should mention is the the awesome weapon that he created oh, yeah 
<laughs> it's a gun that has homing bullets and he just like goes around behind them uh, iconic now in a lot of video games yeah well. I mean, yeah it's like that multi <laughs> multi-weapon thing like that it's just like say, yeah, it does this it's it does a this, it, does gun. it shoots needles it's a flamethrower it shoots a net for no goddamn reason <laughs> it has a cryo <laughs> thing on it how does this thing function now where's the ammunition clip go <laughs> and and i think that goes to for his bomb too because yeah. his bomb is so unique that he has to deactivate it with a card. Yeah. Like, there's no wires or anything. He has to put like some weird ass card in there that only he has. So <laughs> that thing's gonna blow unless he deactivates it himself. That's it. Kind of a genius design. We get to the finale, I suppose now, which is the whole yeah saving the earth because now the big evil is coming closer to the earth uh, uh, as they're trying to go back with all the stones they found and. You know, on the journey, Lilu basically gets to see more of what humanity has done and sees you know, how war escalates and the terrible things humanity does to each other. And it leaves her disillusioned with uh, whether she should be trying to save them at all. Like that, you know, which is you know, understandable. You know, that's the way it would go in a lot of ways. Now, the, the great story then is like, how do you resolve that? As a thing, you know, for someone who is very naive in some ways, but also very steadfast in their beliefs, how will you change the way they feel on something as strong as that, having witnessed everything humanity has done? You know, and I think we go back to what we were talking about earlier. Love, you know, is what they end up doing as a thing, you know, and like, you know, Bruce, you know Corbin Dallas is there saying, you know, like that. Yeah, that's a great thing. Yeah, that's a great example of what humanity can do. There's great things on that you know we do as a people. You know that go beyond the terrible things that a few do, like that. And you know it's you know, very shorthand, you know, very saturated. But again, it works in terms of the honesty that character has shown. You know, and especially with Lily as well, where everything feels quite pure about her and in a way with a bit of danger and a bit of something there that just goes beyond what you or me would think and as a result as corny as it can be in that, those final scenes in the, the obvious sort of outcome is like ah uh, love saves the day sort of thing like that it's nice it, it kind of works and the fact that they've orchestrated the story to this point to get a person basically for every stone and then the figuring out of how the stones work and stuff like that and having everything it, it calls upon like a fate that these people would join together to make this happen and given the way farces work you know in terms of structure and like you have to like put all these pieces together to make all of it work and make the farce a farce and really just be entertaining as something to watch play out like that it's cool how it, that then plays into like the destiny of all the characters involved in it you know on the side of Lily, basically coming together to be part of you know saving the earth as they do like that and to have characters as distinct as they are you know when you think about it, it never would have been interacting in normal life but the way they're introduced is very much happenstance and done in a way that's impressive in that regard. It's quite the ending in that regard. I think it's 
in a really sappy way, I suppose. It's like it shows like from all walks of life we can come together and do the right thing if we really put our minds to it, sort of thing. Yeah, um I I actually feel like this is one of the best endings to a movie. Um because of the way it's done overall. Yeah. You know, the music that plays in it when he's talking to her and trying to convince her about love is one of the best songs in that whole movie. Um, it's a very emotional, sad song, yeah. but you know, it, it's the, her state, you know, like I feel like there's so much negativity that she's noticing and all the bad that's happening around her. It's started to affect her. That's yeah. why in my, that's why I feel like she was so weakened at the end of the movie. Yeah. She got shot, but it was like an arm wound, you know? Um, yeah. But I feel like all the bad and all the evil around her, was taking a toll on her um yeah. and she had to find something you know and you know this is a supreme being that was used essentially as a weapon that's her entire life um and now because she's met corbin and these super colorful characters um she's gotten this personality and mm-hmm. she's starting to feel things and trying to understand things you know, you can't tell me that, you know, this is a supreme being that's been fighting evil this whole time, but she didn't know what humanity did to each other before 1914. Yeah. When the movie starts, you know, like wars has been happening for a long time since dawn of time, you know, it could have been that ignorance. Like they could have just kept that from her, you know. Yeah. Um, and again, we don't know what exactly she was before she was reconstructed. Mm. Um. But, you know, it's like that idea that a machine eventually starts to think and have a personality of its own. Like, you know, iRobot did a very good thing with it. You know, yeah. it feels the same. Obviously, she's, she's not a robot, but it's the same concept. I like it. It feels like Starman, you know? Where it's mm-hmm. an alien learning humanity by having some sort of connection with humanity they wouldn't have previously had. Like that. And yeah, that's the big thing, isn't it? It's like that. maybe that was the missing factor. But they didn't have the empathy, you know. That that uh, was there. You know, we can't sit here and say to ourselves that we don't look at the world now, man. Is this fucking planet worth saving? <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah uh, I feel that way a lot of the times too. Like I see a lot of the terrible things going on. Like God, it's even worth saving anymore? Just let it fucking die. Um, I saw it's the empathy. I empathize with her a lot. Like, why should I save the world when all you do is destroy it? You know, yeah. that's essentially what she said. Um, but you know, the four stones thing I thought was another great moment where you know they have to figure out how it works. None of them have ever seen it work, including the priest, he has no idea. Nobody gave him an instruction yeah. manual. Um, and to discover it essentially by accident, you know, you know, the, the, the kid, yeah. <laughs> you know, he's like, We're all gonna fucking die, and he just sighs <laughs> and it works. <laughs> I love that because that just again feeds into this whole happenstance of everything that's gone on before. Uh, people just end up stumbling into these situations and again feels like destiny that was, it was supposed to happen yeah and and the foreshadowing too with the match throughout yeah. the entire movie bruce willis is trying to find a way to smoke a cigarette yeah <laughs> so it's just the foreshadowing there's the fire and again chris tucker again stole the the moment here in my opinion was like, I, I got no fire <laughs> father do you smoke <laughs> like how do you where do you get the fire and you know he has the last match 
last-ditch, last chance to save the world. And yeah, but but the conversation he has with her is such a good conversation. And you know, yes. he finally, you know, love is what so many consider to be the most powerful thing in 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 the world, right? Yeah. Um, and they obviously emphasize it here, and she feels love for the first time. She's never felt it, and it's such a powerful emotion. It activates her power. Yeah. Um, destroying the, the the evil that's coming, and again, the evil is just that. It's just a means to an end, like like we talked about. Um, yeah. not really the main the main protagonist here. Um, it's just yeah, like but... you know, yeah. I think that maybe that's probably the most interesting thing, though, isn't it? That it's not the main thing, but it's there, constantly creeping towards us. Because that mm-hmm. pretty much does that not just show everything? Yeah, you know, that, that is life these days, where you have to kind of profess, you know, your empathy and your love and passion to things to fight this creeping evil that's taking little bits of it away from you constantly, or it be like joy of writing the joy of making songs or acting or, or whatever you know all these things are being eaten away by people who don't care you know and want to you know basically make it uniform and yeah theirs you know you, you lose the humanity in it. and that's kind of like the evil in in many ways you know the, the planet in many different ways getting sort of dwindled to a bland paste and the only thing to fight back is people caring and showing that care in the ways that they see fit. So it's given the way the rest of the movie is, you know, in terms of how characters are in terms of their sexuality and gender, it's a really kind of, kind of have a powerful side to it in that regard. You know I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I feel it was very ahead of its time. Yeah, it is. And I think, unfortunately, you know, there are aspects that, you know, outside of the film that then don't quite gel with that because, you know, Luke Besson is a great, you know, great as he is as a filmmaker, has had questionable stuff about him beyond that. Yeah. But, you know, you can be a questionable human being in many ways and still produce beautiful things, you know, and still have views that do, you know, lean on the right side of history it's just you know because again that's humanity in a nutshell you know we can do terrible things but we can do wonderful things too and it's just about how you balance the books in that regard and um yeah so it's almost too personal in that regard um as a film but um yeah there's a lot of cool theories that have been going around since the movie came out like a lot of people are saying like the planets in our solar system are just the evil that's been destroyed in the past. Yeah. Which I thought was, was a pretty cool theory. Yeah. I did um, like it that. makes sense. Cause it does look like a planet, right. Or at yeah. least the moon. I mean, it becomes like a moon, doesn't it? At the end when she destroys it, but doesn't destroy it. If you know what I mean? So yeah. Um, and why does it take, was it, what did it say? 3000 years? Yeah. Two? Five, 5,000. I think it's 5,000. So. Like the, the theory is that's how long it takes. Civilization or humanity's evil to build up so it can manifest itself as a physical manifestation. Well, that's um, good then. We'll be dead by then, so it's fine. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I just thought it was a it was a cool theory. Like it, it yeah. takes time for for that to build, and once it's there, then it tries to destroy everything. Um, 
So it's just the cycle that keeps on repeating, unfortunately. But the the end is unique because, as far as we knew from we what we saw in the beginning, once you know the the evil is destroyed, we assume that the supreme being turns into stone or yeah. something happens to it. But that's not the case because she's still alive. Um, because you know they have them doing it and things. Of, yeah. <laughs> the 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 thing. So what happens then? You know, like does she live forever that way, or and you know she doesn't age because she is the supreme yeah. being. You know, it's stuff yeah. like that that people will have questions. Obviously, there's it's not a perfectly written movie by any means. Like there's going right. to be loopholes here and there. Every movie has them. Um, but it's just one of those things where in this movie I don't really care because I'm just watching it because it's such a fun movie to watch. Those things don't really matter to me as much. That's fair enough. Though, you know, a thing I do before we sort of end the episode is, you know, we talk all this positivity about the film. That's the whole point, positivity all the mm-hmm. way through. But I want to have a, like a healthy way of going the other side of it, which is I would always like to say, you know, if there's like one thing about this film that you could readily accept criticism for, what would that be? Or well, the numerous plot holes. Yeah. There's a lot of plot holes. Like, there's just stuff like, why is Zorg the one talking to this evil being? Why did the evil being decide Zorg should be the one that it communicates with? You know, these yeah. things aren't explained. We don't know these things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And in a way, that kind of leaves it open to theory, which is fine, I think, as well. So, not, not everything needs to be explained. So, I suppose that's a, a healthy thing to sort of have uh, as a problem. But yeah, it, there are other things as well that, that do sort of kind of um, pull by the wayside to allow for the cinematic sort of structure to shine through, you know, especially in terms of, like, the comedic choreography of it all, I think. And that's fine, because you get better jokes and better sights out of it by having these great scenes, like we've mentioned, you know, in terms of the shootout, in terms of the the farces with, like, the ticket and stuff like that. It's just, yeah, it, it makes for a better film. And... Really, after that, you're like, oh, well, I felt good watching that film because of that, and that's all you want out of it, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Well, what about you? Like, some of the negatives that you found? At first, it was going to just be that you know, being very highly sexualized in a way was interesting for a movie that's supposed to be a twelve. You know, given um, <laughs> how sanitized we are now by the twelves, it was a bit shocking. But I, I, to be honest, I think that's just part and parcel of everything now, especially with the sort of what you were saying, you know, about how you know, Corbin Dallas ends up being, you know, feeling about her and how he, and we've discussed about the character and how he can be feeling that through his own mindset. So that's not so much a problem. Um, there's a couple of things that don't land as well you know, in terms of like stereotypes and things. I think as, as great as that whole thing with the, you know, the, uh, food delivery thing like that the, the character is a bit very stereotypically asian you know in that way that is <laughs> like that yeah uh, which in some ways you could sort of excuse as being oh you know it's just that that's the idea he's doing it for customer's sake sort of thing but at the same time it's like mm, yeah like that it, it feels a bit off yeah there are a couple of things like that but a lot of that is just off the time and you know you, you um kind of had to accept that as being what it is at that rate rather than 
Yeah, I mean, it is the film for what it is. It's it's a small moment, but it, it's that one day that like, yeah, it is no Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but yeah, it's still like a bit you know strange uh, all the same. Yeah, it, I mean, again, minuscule thing you know, in the uh, grand scheme of that. a film that you know, having not watched for many many years and having a very like shrug your shoulders sort of view on it before I watched it this time. Yeah, you know, I'm really glad to have come back to it and like really felt endeared by it. You know, I just it's probably great uh, to watch it now in a modern blockbuster period because it kind of reminds you of all the things you kind of get away with. And that goes back to what you were saying about plot holes and things like that. It's like they're there. Who cares? Uh, it's like it's still telling a fun story. You know, all the same. So who cares that these little things don't make sense? I think that's been one of the biggest problems of modern blockbusters is they get too caught up in trying to explain everything and they still mm. end up having things you can't explain or things that don't make sense because you try and take it down too narrow a path. You leave it open, ambiguous things that don't make sense. It doesn't matter. You, know, like you think of many classic films when you get those nitpicky videos about what they don't do right and what doesn't work. Why doesn't it matter? Because... The adventure is fun and you're there for the journey like that. It, it doesn't really matter how it works in the same way. You know, you have something in it that is open to interpretation. I think this is. Yeah, this is, this is one example. of those movies where if it came out today, I feel like it'd have like a 28 on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Critics and like a 90 on the audience score. <laughs> I mean, it's not Valerian. Valerian is a good example, isn't it? I think of that. Where, yeah. It, you know, it, it bombed really uh, as a film. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was telling the same thing. But, yeah, the fact this film has become not a cult classic, it's become, you know, really revered for something beyond its box office. Um, yeah, it, it, it holds up. It holds up to this day. Yeah, really it well. really does. Even, yeah. even its CG is actually, for, like, for the little amounts of it that it had, yeah. it really holds up and it uses it. In the in the best way, yeah, 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 it really does. So yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've had a fantastic chat with you, Gary, about this. This has been a, a nice surprise, I have to say. You know, <laughs> covering a film, and this is exactly what I wanted out of this podcast: is to maybe come to a film I hadn't seen before, a film I hadn't appreciated or seen in a long time. Yeah, it, yeah it's it's crazy to me. Like I, I watched it, and I saw so many actors in that movie who are now gone. Yeah. You know, this movie yeah. came out in 97, you know, Tommy Lester is gone. Uh, Ian Holm is gone. Luke Perry is gone. Um, it's kind of crazy to see yeah. so many of these guys just, and Bruce Willis, essentially, you know, with yeah, his, Revenant's out there. I mean, his it's, health. Yeah, it's it's really sad. But yeah, it, it, and, you know, it's, but yeah, at the same time, it's nice, a really nice magical snapshot you know, of a time and a place and it really does just feel like the late 90s in a way that I love, you know, just in so many ways. I, I go back to what I was saying about Jean-Paul Gaultier and that whole Eurotrash thing. That is late 90s to me as much as this is. It, it feels connected you know, in so many ways, even though they are very different beasts. But yeah, <laughs> great stuff. That is it for this episode of Our Punch Trip Gloves. I will be back with another guest another film soon. Uh, until then, go show your Punch Trunk love for your favorite films.